Welcome to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Session 10, What is My Purpose? Unpacking the Four Levels of Calling. Well, welcome back to everybody. Welcome to session 10, which is our our final official session. Um, I want to start off today by taking a quick look at the parable of the talents. This is one of Jesus' parables, a very famous one. And I thought it would be a very fitting way for us to end our summer season of discipleship. So this is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went out on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See? Here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant! So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the that's the parable we're going to we're going to open with Um, this just to give you a little bit of a background. This in chapter five, this is the very, very tail end of Jesus's ministry. This is basically the last week of his life. Jesus knows that in a couple days, it's all going to be over. So these are the, his last few hours, his last opportunity to be handing off to his disciples what he, what he wants to hand off to them. So he's getting them ready for the fact that he's very quickly um, going to be leaving. So question then, um, I just want to open it up for, for a few minutes. What do you think are some different ways that we could interpret this parable? What does it mean? Yes, Gabriel. Evil 
evil to be lazy. Okay. It's not enough to sit on your faith. You have to act on it. Yes, it's a type of money. Yeah. Yeah, and talents in the sense of skills is usually where people go with this. So people will say, God has given you certain t- uh, skills or abilities, and so God wants you to, to use those things. And um, I think that's, that's sort of on to, it, it's close to what the point is. But talents here is a metaphor for something that is um, bigger than just about the skills and, and abilities that God has given you. It's bigger than the money God has given you. But the talents refers to the, the whole scope of all the things that God has put at your disposal. Everything that's yours, everything, every resource you have. It can be your knowledge. It can be your connections. It can be your money. It could be your physical resources. It could be um, the experiences you had. It could be your innate abilities. But you'll notice in the parable that none of the money, none of the talents actually belong to the servants. It's been entrusted to them. And so that's a key idea in this parable is that God, he lends you things. Um, Everything you have is on loan from God, belongs to God, and God is returning. Jesus is returning, and when he comes, he wants to see that the things that he's put into your, uh, the things he's put at your disposal, you've used them to what end? For what purpose? To further his kingdom? To further the interests of his kingdom? To further the, the, the realm of his kingdom? The size of his kingdom? The involvement of his kingdom? The purposes of his kingdom? Such as peace and justice and love and grace? All those types of wonderful things. And so, clearly, Jesus is um, he's putting the pressure on. He is uh, preparing his disciples for his departure. And he wants them to have a very strong sense of of what it is they're supposed to do. And so that brings us today to the topic of calling. Um, what is it exactly that we are called to do? What, is, what are the talents that God has lent to us, the, the resources that he's put at our disposal? What is our purpose? What is, not us as a church, individually, what is your purpose for being here in this world? Why has God brought you here? Why has he given you the things that he has given you? And what are the resources that he's put at your disposal? What is your calling? That's the question. According to a recent Barna Group study, 40% of practicing Christians have a clear sense of God's calling, which means that 60% of people who would call themselves Christians do not have a clear sense of where God is calling them. Um, so maybe that's some of you that are here tonight. Um, it seems like a lot of churches actually don't talk much about calling, and a lot of churches don't talk about much about work. Um, a lot of people have, have been going to church for a number of years and reported in the survey that they never once heard the, the pastor talk about work or calling or vocation, which is interesting considering that most of us spend most of our waking hours at work, and yet the church is silent on it. Apparently, um, 75% of people who would call themselves Christians, like practicing Christians, are looking for a more meaningful life, wanting more purpose, wanting more meaning in their life. So this is a lot of people. So this question, what is my calling, is very, very important. And I want to introduce you to a way of thinking about calling to help you try to understand what is your calling? How has God called you? And you can go to the next slide. Um, we're going to be taking a look at the, the pyramid. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that calling, a helpful way to come out calling 
is to parse it into these different layers or these different levels. And it's a pyramid structure. And so what I want to convey to you tonight is that it starts at the bottom and that's the most important part. And everything builds on top of what comes before it. So at the very bottom there, you see first order calling or identity. So what, what is in thinking about your calling, um, one of the tendencies that we have is to immediately jump to this question of what is it I should do? Um, we immediately think of calling in terms of action. And that's very natural in our culture because we live in a culture which very much defines people in terms of their job, in terms of what they do. We are a, an action-oriented culture, a doing-oriented culture. Most of us don't enjoy being alone. We don't enjoy silence. We like to fill the noise. We like to be doing things. We like to be active. We're supposed to take it easy on the weekends, but usually we use the weekends to do even more than what we've been doing during the week. We, we go, go, go. We're, we're action-oriented, and we live in a culture, too, that judges us based on how busy we are, that judges us based on what we're able to put out, um, what we're able to create our output. Um, and one of the first questions that you have a tendency to ask people when you meet them is, what do you do? Um, we have this tendency to want to um, know each other, and we gauge each other, judge each other, assess each other based on this question, what do you do? So we're a culture that is obsessed with doing. But the interesting thing when it comes to calling is that calling is much more a matter of being rather than doing. That your identity doesn't come from what you do, but rather what you do comes out of who you are. And so as you're thinking about calling, a better question to be asking yourself is not what should I do, but rather to try to answer that question, who am I? Who has God made me to be? What does it mean to be me? This is our first calling, our primary calling, is not a calling to do, but is a calling to be. You and I are not human doings, we're human beings. You've heard me say this before. And when we confuse that and think that we're human doings, then all sorts of, um, all sorts of trouble erupts out of that. Take a look at this passage from uh, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So he'll, he's saying that you'll know a tree um, from the fruit that it produces, but it's, uh, the nature of the tree is going to produce a certain kind of fruit. So the fruit comes from what kind of tree it is. Being comes first. Doing comes out of doing. And if we go through our lives trying to figure out what our calling is, only thinking about what is it I'm supposed to do without thinking about what I'm supposed to be and who am I, then you'll have a nagging sense your entire life that no matter how busy you are, no matter how much stuff you're trying to do and accomplish, you're missing, you're missing a core aspect of, of what life is all about. Because life is not all about doing, but it starts with being. So we need to know who we are. Um, what do you think? Let me ask you guys. What do you think are some of the dangers in confusing being and doing? Why is putting doing ahead of being problematic? Hmm. So if your identity is too much wrapped up in what you do, and what you do is falling apart in some way, maybe for reasons even out of your control, then you start to crumble because who you are is 
very much wrapped up, you know, wrapped up in that. That's a great example. Any other, any other thoughts on that? What happens when we confuse being and doing? How about in terms of the way we treat each other? What happens when we confuse being and doing? Perhaps we, we, yeah, we judge people based on what they do for us, what they give us, rather than valuing them simply for who they are, appreciating them for who they are. We love people as much as they love us, as much as they give us, as much as they make us feel a certain way. And then when that doesn't happen, which it's always bound to not happen perfectly, even in a marriage type situation, then you get very unhappy with the person and you start judging them and critiquing them and, and um, being unkind. Any other thoughts on that? So let me tell you a story. Um, and I hear a variation of this story quite often. And it's a, it's a story in which um, a person will, let's say they graduate from college and they're not quite sure what they do. So they sort of, they sort of bumble around for a couple of years doing odd jobs. They're not really loving what they're doing. They're feeling like their life is not going anywhere. They're, so they're concerned, oh, maybe I should go to grad school. But what should I go to grad school for? I don't really know. I'm not really passionate about anything. Oh, well, lawyers make a lot of money, so I should probably go to law school. So I start studying for the law school exams and applying to law school, but my heart's not in it. And you feel like you're wasting time, and you're trying to figure out what your calling is, but you're getting, hopefully, I, I, None of you think I'm referring to you. I'm not referring to any of you. But maybe some of you can relate. From the faces I'm getting, I feel like some of you can relate to what I'm saying. But you're beginning to sense that, um, like, oh my gosh, my life is sort of flow. It's like, it's, it, I'm wasting time. I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm not, I don't know what I'm, I'm called to do. And see, that is a classic, a classic case of, uh, of somebody having too much of their sense of calling wrapped up in what they think they're supposed to be doing rather than who they are. Because if your calling is based on who you are, you never stop being who you are. And in a sense, even when you have downtime, even when you're confused about what you're supposed to be doing, you can always, um, you can always be embracing your calling in terms of, I am called not to do, but I'm called to be a certain type of a person. And Jesus' ministry, his, um, his, his whole purpose, I think, was to help us answer that very question, who are we? Who am I? Jesus' ministry, his purpose, was to help you and I know who we are, to define our humanity. And if you look at Jesus, you see him forgiving sins, you see him healing people, you see him calling people son and daughter, you hear him telling stories about people who are undeserving, uh, being welcomed into God's family. You see him extending forgiveness to the outcasts. You see him telling stories like the prodigal son in which the, the outcast son who's run away is welcomed back into the family. You can see not only Jesus talking about it, but then in his actual actions, his life and his uh, death and resurrection on the cross, which enables us to have our sins forgiven so we can be welcomed into God's family so that we can finally rest because we know who we are. Who are we? As disciples of, of God, we are His children. We are His sons and His daughters. And that fundamentally is our calling. Not a calling to do, a calling to be. A calling to be His sons and be His daughters, to embrace that. And that brings us to this idea of abiding in Christ. And this is what being is all about. What we're called to do, ultimately, is to abide, to be. John 15 talks a little bit about this. It's a longer passage, but I'm going to read to you because it's so important. 
This is, this, is, this is where being happens, being with God. I am the true vine, and my Father, this is from John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Uh, some translations use that word abide. Abide in me and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In this passage, we see that the doing or the fruit of our lives comes from being, comes from abiding in Christ. And this abiding in Christ is something that we can do anytime. And what it means is that there's there's really fundamentally no, there's no reason that any of us should feel like we're just trying to pass time to get from where we are now to some future stage. Um, none of us should feel like I'm wasting time, I'm not being productive. When you're in between things and you're looking ahead to the next thing, even in that discomfort of being in the middle, abiding can happen. And that is more important than anything else. And uh, your actions, your fruit stems from that abiding. Um, you guys all know, I'm sure you've heard about the Sabbath, um, and this is in a, in the Sabbath command in the Bible, and this is an example of something that I think helps us remember that we're not human beings, but we're human beings. The Sabbath rule was for one 24-hour period of every week that you would not do any work, that you would rest. And the church has often um, associated that day of rest with worship. So it is a day in which you stop doing and you simply be. It's a day set aside to rest. It's a day set aside to remember that your value as a person does not come from what you produce, but your value comes from who you are in relation to God. And that is exactly what worship is about. Worship is about you are who you are, and God is who God is. And when you worship, you're entering into that proper, the proper relationship of a person who's, who knows who they are, has their identity, and who sees God as God is. That's what worship is in its simplest form, is you and God and you being you and God being God, recognizing that and then responding out of that. So your purpose is to worship. Your purpose is to be who God has made you to be. And in the same way, in the same way that we as professionals and we as employees nurture certain aspects of our identity, so too we're called to nurture our identity in Christ. So maybe I'll pick on Ken. Ken's sort of a, he's kind of a design whiz. And so Ken, of course, um, 
you know, he, he learns how to use different design programs, he hangs out with designers, he shares ideas with designers, can networks and tries to connect with people who could, could lead him to um, other opportunities further down with other companies that want to use his design and stuff like that. So, so Ken is a designer, that's part of his identity, part of who he is, and he, I would, I would guess, I would assume that he feeds that identity, he supports it, he nourishes that identity. In the same way that somebody who, like my wife, for example, is a nurse practitioner, and Christy, um, that's part of who she is, and so what she does in order to nurture that identity is she embraces it, she um, reads, She's always educating herself, teaching herself new things. If an opportunity comes up for Christy to gain some sort of additional certification that will make her more valuable in the workplace, she does it without question. She takes courses and uh, increases her skill level. And it's something all professionals are, do probably. And so if you're a writer, you cultivate that, that you're, or an artist, you cultivate it, you nourish it. And being a... If our fundamental identity is as somebody who is a child of God, then wouldn't it make sense that we would also want to cultivate and nurture that identity. And what are ways that we can do that? How do we nurture being? How do we cultivate that identity? I mean, to, the most obvious answer is worship. I don't know if any of you are thinking of that, but worship is, is nurturing being. Because in a way, worship is, is like inact, inaction and action at the same time. You're inactive and like worship, you're not doing anything. You're just, you could be standing there. You could be thinking, but then there's something so active about worship at the same time, but it's an it's a activity of the soul. It's an activity of, of identity. It's a, it's a being who you are and then putting it up in God's presence, basically, or God's presence coming down to you. So worship, um, having fellowship, be, you know, going to church, um, meditation, Bible reading, m- thinking about what it means to be a child of God, these are all ways that we nurture our identity in Christ. And I would say, going back to that picture, that that is our primary calling. Um, the Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to, is to know him and to glorify him forever. We don't use the Westminster, we use the Heidelberg. But the Westminster is good, and uh, it's true. Our purpose, we were created to know God and to glorify Him, to worship Him. That's who we are. That's our purpose. Okay? All right. Moving on then, that's the base of the pyramid. That's where it's all about. Next slide. There. All right. So the second one then is the second order calling, the second level of calling is the, is the calling of relationships. Identity leads us to think about who we know because our relationships are oftentimes what define us. They're what connect really well with who we are. So you can't separate identity and relationships. Identity leads us to thinking about relationships. And as people who are God's children, fundamentally our most important relationship, of course, is our relationship with God the Father. And that has more to do with the first level. But also in terms of thinking about our our most important relationships in our lives, um, that gets us thinking about people in our lives that we have close relationships and close connections with. And this you know, like it's, we're not even at the, the, the question of doing yet. We're still answering preliminary questions. This, I think, is overlooked the question of relationships. 
And it's so, so important. It's so critical that in thinking about calling, we understand the importance of relationships. So let me just tell you a little bit of a personal story as to sort of where this, where this came from. Um, I used to be pastor here at City Grace Church with another pastor named Pastor Steve, and he has since left. He's been gone for about a year and a half, I think. And um, when Steve left, it, was, it happened kind of abruptly. And all of a sudden, I had all this additional weight and responsibility on my shoulders. And I was quite, quite overwhelmed. Uh, my wife, Christy, was very, very understanding. And she knew that I was going to be working a lot. I was going to be out a lot. And uh, she, you know, she recognized that this was a special time. It was sort of not ideal circumstances and that I had to do what I had to do. So for a period of, you know, a couple months, she was very understanding. She's like, do what you got to do. I understand that I'm probably not going to get to spend as much time with you. I can't really have that many expectations of you. Um, You have to do what you have to do. Um, But the months sort of became two months and then three months and then four months. And I'm feeling the weight of the ministry on my shoulders. And so I'm giving it everything that I have. I'm working really hard. I feel very much like, oh, the church needs me now. I, gotta, I really got to step up. I got to work as hard as I can. I got to make sure I'm taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of. You know, it's like two jobs got boiled down into one. So I'm like, I'm handing stuff off left and right. And like just trying to, trying to keep up with everything, trying to do as much as I could. But eventually it got to be too much. And it got to be too much, especially for Christy. So she was understanding for a period of time, but then eventually it kind of got to be the point where she kind of wanted her husband back. And uh, our, we had our second kid. It was a, a, it was a C-section. Um, probably none of you here have had C-sections. Just joking. None of you, none of you have had C-sections, so, so you, don't, you don't know how... Uh, sorry about that. You don't know how... <laughs> You don't know how hard it is to recover from a C-section. A C-section just really, you know, lays you out for a while. And so we had our second kid, and Christy took a long time for her to sort of recover from that. And um, and she really needed me to be there for the second kid. So I, like, took a week or two off, and I was home, and I helped out. But then, like, as, you know, as soon as, like, it seemed like, like they were able to manage, you know, I'm like, okay, I got to, like, you know, I got to start focusing on work again. I haven't been paying attention for things, and I, I need to start working, working, working. And I started, you know, really... Get, get just getting back into it. And um, Christy would sort of be like, Ben, when are you coming home? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be out tonight. I'm going to be out tomorrow night. And she's like, Ben, we haven't spent any time together. I'm like, Christy, don't you understand? Like, I need, I need to be doing work. You know, I feel like you need so much for me and taking care of the kids. I just don't have enough time to, to do my work. And my work is important. I need to be out. I need to be doing stuff. And Christy began to feel as if the job was more important than she was. And she would say this to me. And I was not listening to her. I was not paying attention to it. And I felt, I felt like that was very un- unfair for her to say that. I'm like, come on, don't you understand how important this is for me to be doing all this stuff? Um, and we began to sort of have a lot of issues. And we were not getting along super well. And we were, you know, having a child is just so tiring. It's exhausting. You're not getting enough sleep. On top of that, we were kind of hitting some money issues because she was um, not working as much as she had been before she had the baby. And so the stress just started to mount in our marriage. And it was sort of really eroding things. Um, And it was at a certain point in that process that I had a realization. And that realization was this, that my primary ministry is not the church. 
but my primary ministry is to my wife and to my kids. And I realized, what is the point of me doing all this stuff for the church, loving the church, sacrificing for the church, if I have a wife at home who doesn't feel cared for and doesn't feel loved? And so I realized, whoa, I've gotten things totally wrong. I, I've, been, I've been prioritizing the wrong thing. And what's interesting was, in my mind, I was putting God first because I was putting church first. Right? My job and my spiritual life were all, it was all mixed up. I thought, I'm doing this all for God. But the reality is, if you put God first, if you have that bottom level of the pyramid right, you would never put work ahead of your wife, and you would never put work ahead of your children. Now, there are times, of course, there are periods that call for more from us, but I'm talking about, like, in general, if you're prioritizing God, prioritizing work and prioritizing God are not the same thing for a pastor. It's possible to be prioritizing work, and if you're doing that, you actually have God way somewhere down the, uh, down the priority list. I realize that the proper order is God family, and then work. And so you see how I was missing um, this very important level of what calling is all about. And it's the fact that there are some relationships, and you, I'll call them covenantal relationships. They're relationships where we're, we're covenanted together. It's things like a wife or a husband. It's things like a parent or a kid. It's things like friendships, with people that that you are close with. Those are covenantal relationships. They are defining relationships. And part of understanding what you're calling in has to to take into consideration those covenantal relationships. And so as I realized, as I was thinking about what my purpose is, what my calling is, I realized, yeah, I'm called to plant a church in New York City. I'm called to be a pastor. But even more importantly than that, I'm called to be a husband. I'm called to be a father and to love my wife. And if the ministry was going to interfere with that or get to a place where I was not able to love my wife or my kids, then I have to be willing to sacrifice it. Because what God is calling me to do and vows I've made before God in a wedding Right in front of the church, in front of our friends and family, those bind those bind me, those define me. Now another um, another very important relationship that's a covenantal relationship is the relationship that you have with your parents. Now, like a lot of relationships, um, the level of responsibility or expectation that goes along with relationships with um, it changes over time. So the thing about um, second-order calling relationships is, um, is there's a little bit of an ebb and flow to it, and certain relationships might be more important at certain times of your life than at other times of your life. But I want to I suggest to you, because I know a lot of you wrestle, wrestle with this in some ways. You can go to the next slide. That with, with, per, with your responsibility to your parents, it's sort of, a, it's sort of an upside-down bell curve. All right, the Bible says that you are to honor your, mo- your mother and your father. That's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Fifth Commandment. So I believe that at all times and all places, we're called to honor our father and mother. However, I do think that what honoring your father and your mother means changes over time. Um, when you are a child, there is a high, high level of responsibility being a kid. So you could say that for like a 5-year-old or a 10-year-old, his or her calling 
is pretty simple. It's obey mom and dad. Do what mom and dad teach you to do. Be respectful. But as you get older, um, and I think this is where some of you maybe struggle, is, 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 is I guess, respecting your parents, but, but in a different way. Um, because as you become an adult and your parents are still healthy and sort of taking care of their own um, their own stuff, your responsibility to them is not as significant. It's You have a responsibility as you enter into adulthood to take care of other people. You have a responsibility to take care of a spouse, perhaps, or take care of kids, and that should be primary. That should be more important for you. But then, and the Bible teaches this as well, that when your parents become aged, then the responsibility increases again because now they're in a position of vulnerability and they're in a position of needing help. And so honoring your father and your mother looks differently over time. And this is just an example. But what this means is that your calling could really, at the end of the day, have nothing to do with what your job is. Right? I know that a lot of people want to find their calling in their work. But I think for some people... Your calling might be something different. It might be being a father, uh, being um, a husband, being a wife. Um, it might not have. It could be taking care of an elderly parent. Uh, your calling changes over time, but it is those covenantal relationships that that help us understand and to, to define what are the important things that that we're doing in terms of how we think about our lives. So, so that's the second one. Um, Moving on then to the third level of calling. And yep, and that is location. Now, hope maybe some of you are like dying for me to get to the part where we actually talk about what you're supposed to do. But these are all preliminaries that, are, that I think are more important questions, more fundamental questions that will help you understand what your calling is about. Third order calling is location. The question is, where has God placed me? Um, a lot of times when people become Christians, they, they feel very much like, okay, I got to stop whatever I was doing and I have to try to move. I got to move somewhere. Maybe I'll be a missionary. Maybe I'll leave my current life circumstance and I'll go to a new place and uh, try to live out my calling there. And uh, 1 Corinthians has some very helpful, uh, helpful um, points on this. But I want to just say at the outset that Entering into the life of discipleship, um, becoming a Christian or whatever, God doesn't call us to just drop what we're doing and then to move to a new location. But rather, he calls us to to bloom or to blossom where we're planted. Um, Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I, this is Paul talking. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. I don't know how you could do that, really. <laughs> but was a man uncircumcised when he was called? Um, he should not be circumcised. Thank goodness. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one, this is key, should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. 
Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God has called you. So being a disciple, thinking about calling, you've got to ask yourself, where, where am I? Because your calling is tied to your location. And I don't mean location strictly in a geographical sense, but I mean your context. Where has God placed you? Are you in the art world? Are you in the, the marketplace? You're a business person in the marketplace. Are you in, um, you're in college right now, and so your location is the academic world. Right? Don't try to get out of it, but rather ask yourself, what does it mean to blossom here? You might even be working some crappy job that you hate, and you want very much to get out of it. You'd rather be doing something else. Um, but what would it look like for you to say, okay, I'm in this situation, I don't like it, I would rather be in some other job, but how can I embrace, number one, identity, who I am here, how can, it, how can I live out of the important relationships of my life, and how can even in a job that I don't like, could I be the light, God's light and his salt even in that place? So it's possible to embrace calling or to be called even in, even in places that maybe we don't see ourselves long term. The whole point of this is that we're not waiting around for some future in which we can actually do what we think God has called us to, but rather it's at every moment of every day, even in situations that you might not love, allowing God to be working through you and responding to who you are, uh, responding as who you are in those, circum- in those circumstances and in those situations. Um, so, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's that. Ask yourself, how is God calling me to seek his kingdom here in this place? What does it mean to be on mission for God here? Bloom where you're planted. And the final level uh, is we get to the, the fourth order calling, and that's the question of what am I equipped to do? And the Bible teaches that each one of us is uniquely made. Every single one of us is a unique configuration of personality, of gifts, of, of, um, of relationships, of position in life. Um, God has not made the same two people unique. He's made every single person a little bit different. Um, some very different. He says in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so God has um, placed you, has given you a certain measure of power, certain measure of ability and knowledge. And the question then is, how can you use what he's given you to further the interests of his kingdom, to help build God's kingdom? Every single one of us has a role to play in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 27 through 30 says this, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer is no. He doesn't say it. No, the answer is no. We don't all do all those things. Each of us has one thing that we're good at, maybe a couple things that we're good at, and we're called to use those things to build up the church, to build up the body of Christ. 
But that doesn't mean that everybody's called to volunteer in church because the church is bigger than that and the kingdom of God is bigger than that. But we are all called to play a role in the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, Neil Plantinga has a great book, um, a little book called Engaging God's World. And there he talks about how there is ultimately one king and one kingdom, God and the kingdom of heaven. But there are other, quote-unquote, rulers. And within this larger kingdom, there are smaller kingdoms that are subsumed or absorbed by the, the larger kingdom. And he says that each one of us, in a way, is a ruler of our own kingdom. Each one of us is a, is a king or a queen uh, in a kingdom. And your kingdom is the realm of responsibility that has been entrusted to you. All of us have a little kingdom. Um, you have people that you have influence over. You have um, knowledge. You have connections. You have uh, experiences. You have a unique way of approaching the world. You have your um, gifts, your abilities, your talents, your natural talents. Those all make up your kingdom. And in a way, it's fundamentally human to be kind of a ruler. If you take away someone's kingdom, you dehumanize them. To take away all responsibility and to say, you have nothing that is yours, you have nothing that you're responsible for, is to treat somebody like a two-year-old. Even two-year-olds have a sense of like wanting to have their own stuff, right? Especially two-year-olds, really. But, um, but everybody, it's, it's fundamentally human to, to have some territory that is ours, that belongs to us, that we impact and influence. And the idea of calling then is you take your kingdom with everything that, that is yours, that you have in the broadest sense of having, and then you bring it into alignment with the kingdom of God. So that really, I think, is the final question to ask yourself in terms of what is your calling? Are you an artist? Are you a professional? Are you a teacher? Are you a plumber? Uh, in whatever, whatever it is you do, whatever it is you're doing, how can you bring what is yours into alignment with the kingdom of God? With How can God be king of your kingdom, essentially, is the question. Um, if you, so so that's, that's, I think, how we, how we come to sense that. And, and do you realize, of course, that calling and vocation can happen anywhere? It's not just for pastors. It's not just for people in ministry. But people in finance, people in law, people in any field can be doing kingdom work, can, can have a calling, because it's all about connecting whatever it is that you do with what you've been given and connecting it to, to God and to His kingdom. So if you're, um, if you're still feeling like you don't know what it is you're called to do, and even after hearing all about the pyramids and everything, you're still like, Ben, I still have absolutely no freaking idea what my calling is, then my suggestion to you, my advice is just do something. The worst thing that you could do would be to do nothing. But if you don't know, just try something. Try anything. Because oftentimes it's in, uh, it's in experimenting um, and gaining experiences that we come to have a clearer sense of what it is we're called to do. Sometimes you've got to work a couple of jobs that you hate until you find the one that you love. But if you have the right mindset about it, then even those jobs that you might not like can be deeply valuable and they can be person-forming. You can grow from them and you can learn. 
Um, but if the last thing to do is to sit around and wait and act like you're wasting time and to be wasting time and to think, oh, I don't know what I'm, what I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to not do anything. That's the worst thing that you could do. But if you're in that situation, just take whatever opportunity comes and go with it and learn from it. And then the next time you have an opportunity that comes along, you'll be able to make a, a better decision about what you think is, would be a better fit. Um, Meg Jay has a great book called The Defining Decade, Why Your 20s Matter and How to Make the Most of Them. I'm 33 now, so it's too late for me, unfortunately. But some of you might be in your 20s. And actually, this book is really not relevant for a lot of you because you're all like Cornell grads and NYU grads, and you're super motivated, so you're not sitting around doing nothing. But let me just read this quote anyway. Did you read it? Oh, okay. There we go. All right, so this is, this is what she says. Being confused about choices is nothing more than hoping that maybe there's a way to get through life without taking charge. Did you catch that? In other words, you know what? Yeah, it always is confusing. It's hard to know what exactly you're supposed to do, what exactly you're called to do. But you can't just sit around waiting. You've got to try something. You've got to take responsibility and just go with something. Um, try to make a good decision. And then this is what she said. This is important too. She says, forget about having an identity crisis and get some identity capital. Do something that adds value to who you are. Do something that's an investment in who you might want to be next. In other words, even in those situations where we're not quite sure what to do or we're doing something that might not be the best fit for us, those can be, they can be growing experiences. And they can be experiences for you to be investing in, in who you are by gaining those experiences. So um, I'm going to close in prayer, and then um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll go into our, um, our groups and have some discussion based on these topics. Our dear Heavenly Father, um, I do pray that all of us here would be able to make steps towards discovering a very a strong sense of calling. Lord, maybe, maybe you have already, for some of us here, um, placed a call on our lives. And I, I praise you for that, and I thank you for that. And um, I pray that those who are, in their, who are serving or working in their calling right now would feel confirmed in it, and believe that, that you have placed them in that role. But I, Lord, I lift up to you also those who might be struggling to know what they're called to do, what calling is all about. Lord, we pray for you to, to be at work in this congregation, helping us to grow, helping us to learn. And we pray for the wisdom and discernment that we need to be able to, to make steps forward, to be able to move forward. Um, and that we would, as a community, be helping each other to gain a clearer sense of what our calling is. And Lord, may you, um, may you reveal ways that each one of us can be bringing our kingdom into alignment with your kingdom. Lord, we pray for this um, in Jesus' name, trusting you, trusting in your Holy Spirit, and trusting in your timing as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Be sure to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit www.citygraceny.com for more information.